I'm Pamela Flinton. I'm co-interim college librarian here, and I would like to thank you all for coming out on what is turning out to be a cloudy day. Started out a beautiful day. Um, we are here to listen to the fabulous uh, information going to be given to us by Hillary Davidson. And I just want to take a moment to remind you of where the exits are if we need to. You go out that way if possible. If you cannot, this is also an exit door. Okay. Um, so to introduce Hillary, Hillary is a dress historian and curator with a remarkable, remarkable breadth of knowledge and experience. Uh, she trained as a bespoke shoemaker in Sydney. Anybody know what that is? Custom-made shoes, way! See, we have a very smart group here, Hillary. <laughs> she moved to England for her MA in the history of textiles and dress and became curator of fashion and decorative arts at the Museum of London. Hillary is currently completing a PhD in archeological textiles at La Trobe, Melbourne, and is an honorary associate at the University of Sydney. Uh, for 15 years, she's lectured and published on fashion, textiles, and design and history and theory, and has taught in many institutions, Australia and Europe, and we all know how big Europe is. Um, has, she's also a consultant in historic textiles for the Oxford English Dictionary. She's an editorial board member for the Journal of Fashion Studies, and has presented on a number of television programs, including the BBC documentary Pride and Prejudices, having a ball, uh, done in 2013. Her reconstruction of Jane Austen's police coat, Pelis, how do you pronounce that? I say Pelis. Pelis? Yeah. Thank you. Coat led to this extensive study of the British Regency dress. This is actually Hillary's first monograph. Um, she's based between Sydney and London, and I'm gonna add Canada and the US and a few other places. <laughs> And I want to not only introduce her, but I want to thank um, the people from JASNA, in particular Rita, for putting us in touch together. And Rita's not here at the moment, but the JASNA people are great at keeping us in touch with obvious people that we should be bringing to campus, <laughs> such as Hillary. Hillary? Well, thank you very, very much for the invitation and the introduction, and to all of you for, um, you know, braving the pandemic we now have, apparently. Um, I assure you I haven't been anywhere of the, of the bad bits, and um, I've been disinfecting plane seats madly as I go since I came in from Australia last Thursday. Um, I've mostly got over my jet lag. Yesterday, my time zones were still all resolved into asleep and awake, so I'm sort of slightly more together than that now. So I want to talk to you today about uh, my book and research that I've uncovered in my book because uh, for, for some years, this, this book took me five years to research and write and then another year in production. So it's been a long time coming. And during that time, I've been lecturing um, to many audiences and I've always been going, there's a book coming, there really, really is, there really is. So I'm very pleased to be able to start lecturing going, here's a book, it, it exists. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit today about uh, why I did this research and what I uncovered when I did it. Um, and then if that intrigues you and you'd like to read further, the book will be, there's some copies which um, Pam has 
very kindly got in to sell and I will be signing them if you'd like them signed. You might be able to keep your pen away from my book. Uh, if you have already read the book, I have um, dug into my um, very large source of images. Um, there's about 182 images in the book and I have about 5,000 in my research files. So I've gone for ones that aren't in the book so that you get kind of more spread of um, Regency dress. This is what I think of as the, the second 11. Uh, so oh, it works. So why dress in the age of Austen? Well, I feel it's one of the periods, the Regency period is one that we sort of think we know from Austen adaptations. It is endlessly filmed and refilmed. Uh, of course, we have a new adaptation of Emma out and I've been doing... Um, presentations on the costumes for that in front of screenings recently, so I've kind of been thinking about that a lot as well. But the, the, the kind of connections of Jane Austen and the Regency period, uh, as um, people have said, you know, in popular culture, Regency England becomes a timeless mythological place called Austenshire, and the kind of the, the view of the screen Regency really colours our perspectives on uh, the period. Not least, I'm, I'm convinced that the fact that it's much easier to film when you're in the English countryside in the middle of summer when there's less rain means that we think it's permanently sunny in the past. And anyone who's been to England for, ooh, five minutes knows that that's probably not going to be the case. So I'm interested in the kind of the, 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 the connections and disconnections between the reality and the image of Regency England. Um, and I'm also interested, was also interested in... Uh, the same sort of things about the life of Jane Austen. So here's sort of, you know, the short summary. I know that for many people I give this talk to, these dates are sort of etched internally. Um, but, you know, she, she, she's, she's a fantastic author to look at Regency dress through because um, born in 1775, dies in 1817. Um, the, she doesn't quite sort of finish out the Regency period, but her life encompasses this period of incredible change which is actually one of the things that I find most interesting. I'm not that interested in the 18th century, but once things start to move in the 1790s, it's this incredible period of transition and development and modernity, which Austen's work also beautifully reflects. The joy of Austen as well in using her as um, a beginning is that she is not only you know, an, an extraordinary author, um, but if you approach her not as this kind of singular monumental bastion of English literature, but it, one of the side effects of that is that now she is at the centre of the best biographised middling gentry um, English family that there is in that, in that period. So looking at her life and her work and, you know, including all the letters and the incredibly observant um, eye that she brings to the world around her. But once you sort of look into her family as well, you've got this, this, you know, everyone else has done all the research and I can just sail along the top of that and look at the Austen family as exemplars of, of middle class consumers, um, of which it turns out they are beautiful exemplars. And the more I looked at them, the more I realised how average they are. So, you know, Austen is foremost a social commentator and dress is always a nuanced social marker. It's one of the things that makes us human. Everybody gets up in the morning and does something to their bodies and gets dressed. Um, and as a dress historian, you often have to fight against these preconceptions of fashion as being something that happens to people over there, and we're just wearing clothes. You're like, I need clothes. Uh, so th this kind of, you know, th those connections between what, what is happening in fashion, but what, what did the people in the age of Jane Austen get up and do to their bodies every single day? Um, so this kind of, you know, clothing and needlework in her novels, they pinpoint niceties of character. I also feel like 
you know, I've thought a lot about why the Austin period or the, the, the Regency period is so popular because of Austin, but I also feel it's because the clothing becomes something approaching what we think of as normal. We can see ourselves in them. You know, in the 18th century, you've got these kind of incredibly distorted figures that look historical. And even in the later 19th century, from the 1820s and 30s, things start expanding again until you get to the kind of that middle period, you know, your Civil War period where it's kind of, you know, maximum gone with the wind largeness. <laughs> but in the Regency period, there's kind of figures are straight up and down. You know, men have kind of the figure that is still our version of masculinity today with wide shoulders and narrow hips. And I feel that that makes it kind of approachable in a different way to many other periods of dressed history. And I love pictures like this. This is a close-up of um, a Scotch fair. And all of these tiny little details, you know, she's getting her shoes fixed and the kind of the way that it falls and the people at the, you know, the background playing around there. It's, there's, there's a personalness to it that I really find engaging. So this, you know, I was interested in, in getting back to first principles and stripping away a lot of the mythologies that I'd read about Regency dress and writing the book that I wanted to pick up when um, I did a lot of research on Regency dress, which for me started when I was living in Hampshire, um, Jane Austen Heartland, and I was asked to reconstruct the police. So I kept wanting to get the big book of Regency dress off the shelf, and it didn't exist, so I wrote it. Um, and uh, so I'm, I was interested in these kind of the realities. I'm interested in, in a sense, kind of pricking the balloons in the same way that Jane Austen did. I mean, that's a grand statement to make, but to, to get past a lot of the kind of the idealization of Regency dress and look at how these people negotiated clothing. And one of the big um, kind of mythologies of the Regency period for dress is that women abandoned corsets and they just shucked them off. And one of the things that I really came up with um, while doing the research, because I really, I really did start with first principles. I assumed I knew nothing about Regency dress and then researched it everywhere I possibly could. Um, very, very wide-ranging reading and looking at objects. And the, even the idea of what a corset is or what pairs of stays are changed at this time. So in the 18th century, women's torsos were kind of conical and encased in whalebone. Very stiff, very geometric. And what we have in the Regency period is one of the most radical changes, well, it is the most radical change in dress since the end of the Middle Ages in the 15th century. We don't see stylistic transition this rapid and extreme until the 1920s, 100 years later. And what happens is that we get two breasts again. Um, this talk is going to be quite breast heavy, so I'm just warning you now. <laughs> so the idea of having, you know, actual two separate breasts is quite radical. It changes how you make clothes as well. But the idea that women cast off their stays is very different to the idea that women didn't support their breasts. So stays actually morphed. And you can see this is a fantastic transitional pair that has got some of the shape of the 18th century with the tabs down the bottom that support the weight of the petticoat, but it's getting shorter. And by the 1810s, we've got the beginning of the Victorian, uh, sorry, the 19th century silhouette that's going to become more hourglassy. So the entire, it, it shifts in fabric, it shifts in quantity of boning, um, it becomes lighter, made of cotton with less boning, it shifts what it covers. It's trying to sort of imitate a natural body there, but it's still underneath. Women have always had breasts, and you always have to do something with them in clothing. Um, and the idea that, well, it's, it's, it's a fundamental, you know, I, I tell my fashion students this, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you, you're like, yeah. You know, we've got we've, the, the human body is a constant. You know, we, we, you have to. You've got the same 
engineering problems uh, always. So the, the idea that women cast off their stays means they're casting off the heavy whalebone, but they're replacing them with corsets, which is a different garment. Corsets are lighter. They're made out of cotton. Um, and so that's the kind of... We use the terms interchangeably, but corset comes in during this period, and then it becomes sort of the normal term for these supporting undergarments throughout the later 19th century. But I also started looking at clothing differently, and one of the big themes that came out for this period is that how much it relies on the illusion of naturalness. The stylistic um, influence that comes through, which is generally accepted, is that of classicism. And the classicism from the ancient world, from the Greeks, from the Romans, uh, going back to the kind of the influence of statues, looking at the natural body, but a wider kind of classicism as well. You've got Arcadianism, pastoralism, a kind of an idea of naturalism. So fashion is always about imitation you know fashion there, there's no such thing as the natural body because we're acculturated since birth so how they fake naturalism is really quite important um first of all i have whole files where i track regency nipples can you see a little uh there are nipples on the cover of my book which i think the publisher didn't notice uh so this this kind of this dress is really represents that kind of light airy natural uh you know grecian goddess look but the more i looked and more i thought about you know what they're actually doing with breasts and and the re the the accounts that say they appear to be wearing no stays i'm like are they really and things like this which is a portrait by thomas lawrence so you can see she's got two individual breasts and you can see her nipples but, um, so it looks like, you know, she's got nothing on underneath. But have a look at this little brooch in the middle. How do you pin a brooch to nothing? You can't. And so that means she's got supportive garment on underneath and it's probably got a busk that's keeping everything in the middle there. And what it's doing, because that's the idea, is making it look like she's wearing nothing. But the arrangement of the dress tells us that she's wearing something underneath. And the more I looked, the more I saw details like this that are kind of showing that negotiation between your, what you're aiming for and how you achieve it. It's like, you know, a t-shirt bra now or Spanx or that kind of, you know, shapewear that's like, no, it just all stays in like this. And you kind of oh, <laughs> underneath, which they also had that as well, like pink body stockings for the, for the extreme. But that's, you know, not what you do in the deepest, darkest rural Hampshire. The, um, if you have seen the new Emma, um, this is where it's from. That's taken directly from that from that plate. But the idea of kind of um, this is a real period of experimentation with stays and corsets. So this this picture is from 1812, from the poetical poetical sketches of Scarborough. And so even as late as 1812, we've still got kind of the longer waisted, uh, even the short stays as they're called. They're longer waisted. They've got the tab. They've still got this echo of the 18th century style. But they're coming underneath the bust. So they're still kind of supporting from below. It's very hard to do this talk without using my own body to demonstrate. I try and keep hands off, but it's much easier if I can go, and then you do this, and then you do that. Um, no dignity as a historian. But the, so this kind of, you know, the long stays, they're still trying to work out what they do. By about 1820, they've got it sorted, and fashion starts to kind of coagulate, and everybody's on the same path. What I love about this kind of 1795 to 1820 period, which I'm calling a long regency, um, you know, it's such an, an amorphous term, and you see regency used for everything from kind of the end of the French Revolution to the beginning of Victoria's reign in 1837, is this, this period of experimentation in dress, and it's really exciting in that sense. 
So I also another part of this kind of fake naturalism that I ca- that I got into was wigs. Because in the 18th century, wigs are a very distinctive part of the clothing and they're part of what is, is that sort of distancing of history. The grey, you know, grey horsehair wigs um, or powdered hair that's obviously in styles that look different. And the thing is that continues throughout the Regency. It's just that this time they make it look like real hair. So this is our fashionable lady. Of course, it's a kind of a slightly satirical plate, but with her shaved head and then she puts her wig on on top. And when you start reading the accounts, hair pieces and fake hair are everywhere. And you often have women kind of cutting off bits of their own hair to make false fringes, um, their daughter's hair to get the same colour match. Um, you see the popularity of turbans with fake hair coming out from underneath, so you can just keep your you know, locks underneath, not have to do anything with them. Uh, and all sorts of, you know, fake hair is just massive in the Regency. But if you don't know that you're looking for it, it appears like real hair which is where you get pictures like this is Thomas Coots, um, the elderly banker who started the bank that the Queen still banks with now. And once you start looking at pictures of older gentlemen, you're like, hang on a second, his eyebrows don't match his hair. And his hair is sitting a little bit funny, and this is a wig. Um, But again, it doesn't look like an 18th century wig, so it sort of passes us by. And the other thing about wigs is they keep your head warm. They are like a fur hat, and it's a period where you know central heating is not that efficient, and they're quite they're quite comfortable. Um, they do fall out of fashion by about the eighteen early eighteen twenties. For women, the hair pieces continue, but for men, they're definitely gone. But there is this transitional period of uh, wig wearing, natural wig wearing. By eighteen twenty two, George the fourth is looking kind of old fashioned in his trying to retain his youth flaxen wig. Um, so sources say. And also, um, I sew. You know, this is a, a for me. This is a way that I actually, you know, do historical research, and I've written extensively about this. My PhD concerns this. So I was really interested in reclaiming or kind of re-examining the role of sewing in clothing. You know, you don't get clothing without sewing, and it's mostly women doing it. And for gentry women of Austen's class, they are their lives are filled with needlework. They're sewing for themselves, for their friends and relations, or they're supervising employees. So their, their servants doing it. And Austen, uh, needlework is throughout her novels and her letters as well. And she, she brings a quite a nice distinction to it. Her fine or flighty characters are always doing decorative needlework, which isn't very useful. <coughs> and her heroines do actual needlework. So um, they're, you know, Catherine Norland in North, North blah, blah, the, you know where I mean, Northanger Abbey. They are, uh, she's making cravats for her brother, even... Lizzie Bennet works, but it's just kind of, it's tossed in there. So they're doing um, more sensible, useful things. And this kind of, the the connection, you can see this work basket here. Um, Women, it's a sociability thing as well. They're taking these work baskets, it's an extension of their private space, they're working communally together, and it's very much a way of um, increasing the social space and forming all those networks and acquaintances of community that are so important in Austen's books, who you know and um, how you maintain those kind of emotional links is often done through the act of sewing or the transmission of the things that you sew. So the, I also, you know, I'm very interested in the, the technical skill involved as well. This is a Regency man's shirt and you can, sorry, I'm having to go around the corner here. Uh, you can see the. this has still got the original pleating in the sleeves, which is what gets them into those tight coats. You know, it's not all kind of the foofy sleeves. They were actually 
kind of you know engineered in. And the Jane Austen was in a, a great sewer by her own admission. You know, she's not backwards about coming forward, and but also by other people's admission, she was a really excellent sewer. And um, the the level of technical skill again, we tend to sort of think of the Regency period. If we think of needlework, it's about the embroidery, the white on white, you know, these beautiful muslin gowns or the chenille work. But have a look at what's involved here. This is stitching on a shirt that belonged to Thomas Coutts, whom we saw there as well. So it's all done by hand, and from here to here is an inch. Mm -hmm. That's 50 stitches to the inch. Half a millimetre long. I've not seen a sewing machine now that can replicate that. And that's plain sewing. That is unacknowledged, everyday, expected women's incredible technical skill. Um, and I think that should be celebrated. I'm, I'm really interested in those kind of um, the, the en everyday engineering and technical knowledge that goes into making clothes, especially in this period of dressmaking where they're kind of experimenting. They're working it out as they go along. But I think for me, oopsie daisies, this also ties into um, Austen's life. I feel there's a real trope, especially in, in fiction kind of now. Um, think of Merida in Brave, where the feisty young heroine doesn't want to sit at home doing her needlework slash tapestry slash embroidery. Instead, she wants to go and ride a horse and learn how to sword fight or, you know, do archery. And she's, you know, not going to stay at home, mother. Um, and there's this kind of like dichotomy between being a strong, liberated woman and you know, needlework is somehow always a drudgery and always um, a problem. But this is, this is Jane Austen's work. This is the work of her hands. This is um, the needle case that she painted to make a little gift for a friend, uh, one of her relations. This is her very fine, neat, precise hand that she wrote her manuscripts in. And this is her very fine, neat, incredibly precise satin stitch that she used to embroider a handkerchief for her sister Cassandra. Now, I'm not good at satin stitch, and she was considered especially great in it, and boy, is she. And there's no difference between what she produces. Um, it's all the same. It's all precise, observant, exact, very, very neat. And there's records of, there's a record of her, her niece remembers that Austin, who she really liked sewing, um, and she would sit in the corner working, and suddenly she'd laugh, jump up, go over to a table and write something down and then go back and continue working. And I'm convinced that sewing actually enhanced her creativity, that she could sit there and just turn sentences over in her head, um, you know, think about it, work on it, just kind of think about it to herself while her hands are occupied. It's what we do with mindfulness stuff now. Um, and, you know, she didn't go off going, that's it, mother, I'm not going to go and do my embroidery, I'm off to invent the modern novel. She did the needlework and invented the modern novel. And I don't think the two were mutually exclusive. Um, so in that sense as well, I'm, I'm interested in making, I'm interested in how Regency people got clothes because it's not ready-made at this period. So how are dressmakers making and charging for clothes? Because that also depends how people value it and see it. We have fast fashion now and people don't value textiles. Um, textiles were expensive then. People understood them on a material level. Think of the scene of Henry Tilney in Northanger Abbey. He knows what an Indian muslin is. He can look at her gown he assesses the cost and he knows how it's going to wash, how it's going to wear, because people understood clothing and textiles through their hand. So when people are, they're, they're not just assessing style valuations, they're assessing economic valuations, which they can see from every element in clothing. So I was interested in how this kind of breaks down, and I've found fabulous bits in archives. This is from 
the Jarvis collection in Hampshire of um, a gentry family. He was an MP. She was his wife, um, Eliza Jarvis. I want to do a whole thing on their collections. They're just amazing. And the, the costs of breaking down making a dress, it's not just a dress. You, you, you do it separately. You make the dress and then you trim the dress and then you line the dress and then you have ribbons for it. And they've all got different costs. So you know, the concept of trimming a dress, and as Mrs. Elton says in um, Emma, you know, how do you like the trimmings of my dress? I have a great horror of being over-trimmed. Because people are seeing this as two separate processes and assessing it as two separate processes. And now we tend to look at it as kind of you know, one thing. But I'm very interested in kind of recreating the period gaze because if you see how people see clothing, you see how people understand clothing at the time. In the same way, um, I had this fantastic find of an account book in Chawton House Library, which is uh, in, in the, the great house that Jane Austen's brother owned. And it was from um, a woman in London called Mrs. Topham, and this is the expenditure of money for her own use. And it's this wonderfully eccentric sort of list of ribbons and shoes and um, scissors and having her head shaved and washing Buffont, who I thought first was her dog, but it's actually a wig. Um, and uh, she's got all sorts of hair pieces, all with French names. And this kind of sense of drip feeding of buying things, especially ribbons. About 45% of her purchases overall are ribbons. And this sense of kind of um, you know, clothing being changed and modified and updated, which we also get a sense of from Austen's letters. She's constantly kind of you know, adding ribbon here or changing the back of a bonnet. And there's a kind of... Um, uh, uh, it's, it's like a movable front wave of fashion that happens to clothing that people are negotiating on their own terms. So in the same way, I'm interested in how people shop, um, you know, where their local shop is. I feel that the, the new Emma slightly does the shop forwards a disservice by making it a haberdasher's because it was a general store. It had all the ribbons and tan... Um, York tan gloves and um, muslins and things, but it also would have had soap and nails and all the things that Mr. Weston goes in there six out of seven days a week for. He's not going into the haberdashers in the shop for, you know, ribbons six out of seven days a week. So this kind of like slightly, slightly homespun um, shoemaker in his store fitting a couple of clients. I'm interested in that kind of experience of retailing and how people are getting clothing. So all of these trimmings that are going on, um, it made me start to see Regency clothing differently myself. So I love Mrs. Mrs. Yellow here. She's an unknown woman um, because she is so haberdashery-tastic. She has got ribbons and buckles and cording and braiding and gauze and lining and satin and lace and lace and lace and ribbon and lace and she's just like resplendent in the contents of the haberdashery store. So all of these kind of bits and pieces, these are from um, things I've looked at on the way, that really mattered to Regency people. You've got the gown underneath and then you're putting these trimmings on separately and you can trace how fashion changes in the increase of trimmings that happens throughout the, the, the late hundreds and early tens. So by after 1815, trimming really increases on gowns because it's more cheaply available. And this kind of sense of, of um, multiple layers of clothing really helped me to kind of um, interpret images and clothes in a new way. In the same sense, the use of caps and bonnets, um, when Lydia Bonnet, Lydia Bonnet buys a Bennet, um, there's a tongue twister <laughs> for you, Lydia Bennet buys a bonnet in Pride and Prejudice, um, she's spending quite a lot of money on something that she thinks is ugly but she may as well buy as not. And then she's going to buy some more ribbon to trim it fresh with. 
all of these, uh, you know, lots of the decoration on here is just pinned on. Um, it's kind of, it's transient, it's movable. This is something that you can, again, like the gowns, you have a structure underneath and then you put trimming on top. And uh, caps were worn a lot. Um, it's a very easy way to deal with your hair when you're not washing it regularly. Um, and, you know, putting it up at the back. Austin took to caps about 25, which was considered quite uh, early to wear them all the time. She had knee-length hair. So, you know, much easier to just bundle up in the back than have to do anything with it. But all, a lot of the things that women are sewing are these small caps. But they're also a great way of adding fashion to your outfit or kind of keeping up with the more latest fashion without the expense of a new gown. So caps and bonnets and, and gloves and purses and mittens, all of those little accessories work really well as kind of adding fashion. And this happens all the way down the social scale. There's been some fantastic work recently on working women and how important ribbons were to them and how they participated as active fashion consumers um, in a way that's often assumed that they just kind of couldn't do. But you can always add a ribbon. You can buy a one penny ribbon and add, you know, a little bit of flounce here or a new thing to a bonnet. So this kind of participation in fact, fashion was a spectrum uh, that could happen you know, with individual negotiations and you could go full Mrs Elton or you could keep it you know, restrained. I do kind of love her. She's the most clothesy of all Austen's characters and she's so bad and so good at the same time. Um, she's kind of a wonderful monster. The, I was also interested in how people saw differentiations in style. What was a French dress? What was a Parisian dress? Why was this desirable? What were the style wars between France and England engaged in? And it's this fantastically ambivalent relationship where England's going, well, obviously the French are vulgar and overdressed and unwashed and they wear too much gold jewellery and their bonnets are too high and their skirts are too short and we really want a French dress. Uh, and the French were going, well, the English, you know, they're dowdy, they're vulgar, they're interested, they're not vulgar, they're just boring, they're interested in historicity, but yeah, they, they cut nice clothes. Um, and I think this picture, which I really should have included in the book, this is probably my one regret, this is um, a French plate, but obviously you can see the difference between French girls, why are we here? Uh, no, these are English girls dressed in the French fashion, and these are French girls dressed in the English fashion. So, um, you know, trying to sort of unpack those nuances has been quite interesting. I can tell a French style at a glance now, um, especially post 1815, but it's taken me five years to be able to do it. Um, it would have, you know, been instantly obvious to people at the time. But kind of more important, and certainly what Austen focuses more on, is the difference between elegance and fashion. Elegance is kind of her highest term of approbation. And to be elegant is perhaps what we might think of as to have style now or to be chic. It was to adapt the clothing. And, you know, when you think about all this possibility, you're having to make all these decisions yourself. Um, you can take fashion inspiration from other people, but how do you adapt it to your body? How did... Well, it's a great concern for the gentry to negotiate a path between um, respectability, being fashionable enough but not too fashionable, this kind of path in between. It's that old dilemma of... You know, a man shouldn't be attracted to a woman who is too fashionable, but how does he know that she's too fashionable unless he knows what fashion is? Um, <laughs> so th these kind of concerns. Um, and, you know, things like in Emma, the distinction between Jane Fairfax, who's always described as naturally elegant and has great elegance, whereas Mrs Elton, in, in what I think is one of Austen's best clothing burns, is described as as elegant as lace and pearls can make her. <laughs> um, 
you know, it's put on. She's an ex- she, she has no internal character, no internal worth, unlike Jane Fairfax, so she has to put on her elegance. Um, so Austen herself favoured neatness and cleanliness, and this was kind of very much a hallmark of British fashion. There were men in the Regency period. Uh, they also wore clothes. And for men, what we have, I mean, in a sense, Regency women's fashion, it's getting more casual, it's getting lighter, more moving to a cotton regime. But this is very much happening with men's clothing as well. While Anglomania had swept across uh, British, uh, men's clothing in the continent, the idea of the country squire who rode and was very active and was the uh, counterpoint to the very ornate silk um, affected French courtier, the influence from riding dress really came through him here. So the jockey cap, um, Austin had a riding cap in straw made for her. The multiple capes of a coachman's uh, greatcoat, uh, even sort of the, the single cape here, the high collar, these found their way into both men's and women's fashion. There's lots of complaints about men dressing like they're grooms. And, you know, it should be distinct. A duke should look like a duke and a groom should look like a groom and they shouldn't swap clothing because then nobody knows where we are in the social order and it will all break down. This is, of course, a, this is a complaint about fashion that has always happened. You find it from ancient Egypt onwards. It's, you know, nothing changes. But this kind of the, the riding dress and the um, what is effectively casual clothing really comes through and becomes a dominant influence in men's dress. While for women, the kind of classical influence was coming through in, in white clothing, it's subtler in men, but often these paler trousers with the wide-shouldered coats, they're reflecting class- classical antiquity, all of those kind of, you know, strong manly thighs of, of wrestlers. But even the use of things like boots in the city was, it's, a, it's effectively making sportswear uh, acceptable in formal dress. And the... I'm interested in things this as well, like the, the tightness fit, you know, there's kind of wrinkles around there. It's not something they kind of reproduce in screen very often because it's a different bodily comfort. People had a different experiential understanding of clothing and it was generally a lot tighter and a lot pulled in, more pulled in even for men. So you get these fantastic oops, images, uh, like the pictures of um, Richard Dyson who drew from life a lot of men in the city. So although men's dress is more homogenous than women, there's still a lot of individuality in kind of the cut of the coat, the way that it sits, the way they put things together, and the way that it wears in, because they had uh, fewer coats that they wore for longer. So their clothing was more identified with them as um, they went on. And especially the use of wool. This is really the beginning of the great period of English tailoring and uh, the, the beautiful use of cut edges to make these incredibly crisp, lapels and collars it's like felt so they're not turning them in it's so beautifully done you can have these incredibly crisp outlines again something they show really well in um the new emma which i think is the best costumed austin adaptation that has ever been made there are issues but overall bang on it's very exciting to me to say that because normally i'm just complaining about the hair in regency (laughs) adaptations (coughs) sanderson uh so yeah the so, but you know, part of this kind of the increase in use of wool and the influence of riding dress that's happening across both men and women's clothing is also to do with the increases in mobility. The fact that roads are getting better, carriages are getting better, uh, people can move faster and see and do more things. As Mariah Edgeworth said, you know, we can all see and do exactly what everyone's saying at exactly the same time, which is 200 years before the smartphone. 
So women are, you know, dressing in riding habits for travel uh, as well. And this kind of, you know, the external carriage and the protection from the mud and the dust and the remains of horses was quite important for kind of, you know, keeping the clothing clean. They, here is an example of 1795 riding dress with riding habit with the still the slightly conical um, 18th century shape. But they were, you know, these kind of woolen outer garments were also very important for keeping warm. One of the questions I've had more than anything while I've been lecturing is, but how did they keep warm? Which I, again, think comes from the kind of white muslin in summer view of the past. So when you get pictures like this where she's wearing a pelisse or a redding goat underneath a fur tippet with a fur muff, it gives you more of an idea of what's going on. And one of my favourite quotes that I found is from Mariah Edgeworth where she was in an open carriage in uh, northern England in November. And she says, I was well wrapped up, first my grey cloth gown, secondly a furred pelisse, third a red shawl, fourthly a large fur tippet. Besides all these coverings, I had a great box coat over my knees. In short, I was warm as a dormouse. Isn't that adorable? So, you know, they, they, they had ways to keep warm. Um, and again, one of the beautiful things about the new Emma is that they show the commonness of the red cloak, which uh, I know there are a lot in America as well. They're called cardinal cloaks over here. But in, on the continent, visitors thought that they were peculiarly English and they were worn by gentry women as much as labouring women. This is from um, Diana Sperling's Watercolours. And I just love this. This is the kind of the everyday sense of the Regency I was trying to get back to. You know, what do you do when you're walking through mud? And they're just going to for a walk or to visit their neighbours and they've got their red cloaks on. It's kind of like, you know, puffer jackets from Uniqlo that everybody wears now. Um, so there's this, you know, there's, there's these lovely warm clothes coming out as well. But possibly my favourite thing that I discovered while doing the book was the extent to which Regency people were wearing wool flannel underwear. Basically, there's thermal clothing going on underneath there. And you have flannel waistcoats. Um, and the, the, the one key thing that sort of tipped this all off for me was the reference in Sense and Sensibility, where Marianne Dashwood, age 17, is using the flannel waistcoat of Colonel Brandon, age 35, to um, show exactly how decrepit and ancient he is because the flannel waistcoat is so much associated with aches and pains and rheumatisms. And it is, you get, you know, when you're, when you're sick, you get wrapped up in the flannel. But you're also, men are often wearing flannel, uh, this is, so this is what Brandon's flannel waistcoat would have looked like. Um, and women also wear flannel stays, flannel nightgowns, flannel um, petticoats. This is Dr. Flannel offering her um, a flannel petticoat to keep her loins warm, and she's going, I have no loins. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, there's, th that's all going on underneath as well. Um, you've got flannel drawers for men, and this is female patriotism wrapping up their army man in uh, wool flannels. But it is a very army-associated, very military garment. And um, this is also what Austin is alluding to in with Colonel Brandon. He is military, and the flannel waistcoat is a military garment. I think there's also a third trope going on here, um, which as I've seen references to, and of course, you know, because it's Austin that works on three levels and she's very sly about it, seen references to um, the idea that an old man should wear flannel underwear instead of taking a young bride. So there's a play on Colonel Brandon and Marianne Dashwood there as well. But the, I mean, flannel is, is basically, it appears in all these martial guides to health. 
with the Duke of Cumberland, who became um, William the Fourth, his one of his illegitimate sons, ten illegitimate children, none legitimate. Uh, he had just joined the army, and the Duke writes to him and says, "In the event of sudden mobilization, leave everything behind except boots and flannels. They are the best and most important thing." And you see this again and again that the um, the importance of flannel as a kind of a temperature regulation if you're going to the tropics or to the arctics or to sea just take flannel at all times just in case it will keep you keep you safe so it, this kind of leads into the influence of um, martial and naval clothing at the period obviously it's a very military time what with the wars and all and so much from military dress had um, especially for men a profound and lasting influence on clothing so from the military uniform uh, the idea of the stock which is different to a cravat in that it's a stiffened uh, support for the neck. It's almost like a corset for the neck. Lots of the decoration, like the braiding, the horizontal braiding that appears throughout men's and women's dress. The idea of pantaloons, so ankle-length tight trousers, um, as opposed to the knee-length breeches and then stockings underneath. And again, the use of uh, boots over pantaloons. Pantaloons go beautifully into boots. And the fact of, as well as the riding influence, the amount of military men who are wearing their boots, it's kind of like a, it's, it's a military fashion, it's like wearing combat boots on the, the street. So they're helping to popularise that as well. Besides the sheer kind of visual punch of red in that landscape of, you know, paler colours. So things like the Spencer, the short jacket, uh, which was in the male wardrobe and then expanded into the female with the uh, the tails cut off um, and you see a lot of decoration this is sort of 1795 late 1790s version of the Spencer lots of kind of the high collar and the way that they're decorated with braid and cording is very much influenced by military dress and then it becomes the sort of the more fashionable version and this has got the historic influence which comes in in the late 1810s the use of um, pantaloons uh, is very, very much from the army. Um, so either officers off duty or imitation officers. And this is the Prince of Wales before he got, you know, really fat. Um, he was nominally in regiments, but really he just liked the clothes. He liked the clothes for everything. He loved uniforms and dressing up. So this is him resplendent in a hussar's uh, coat. And again, the Shaco hat from there, you see lots of Shaco hats in women's clothing. And, you know, the idea of going a la hussar. So that's the kind of the full military version. And here are a couple of um, <laughs> the street versions of pantaloons, the, both the dandy version and then the kind of the, the respectable man. And it shows you how by this is about 1812, 1813, don't quote me on that, didn't quote the book, uh, the pantaloons and boots had become normal city wear for men. <coughs> me. So <coughs> from just having breeches to wear for the, the gentry man, the Regency is opening up um, the possibility of, first of all, pantaloons. Then after 1814, we get Cossacks, which are literally named after Cossack trousers. This is in the, the first piece in 1814, the Russian emperor visited London um, and with his troop of troops of Cossacks. So these trousers that are full and pleated at the top with a strap underneath the instep, they became part of men's fashion and they continue throughout the 1820s, called Cossacks, by Cos they inspired by Cossacks. 
but probably the number one change to men's legwear is actual trousers, which are loose-fitting as opposed to tight-fitting um, from the from pantaloons and these are really probably the best example of kind of trickle up style they were working dress that became acceptable middle class dress and they had been worn by sailors especially and uh, laboring men for most of the century they're easier they're looser they're comfortable generally made out of cotton uh, typically striped and a lot of sailors shirts are striped here as well and because as, as the navy became more and more important in Britain's military success um, and tactical success, the naval clothing, it was kind of like an homage to it. And you had, again, more and more naval officers on and off as, you know, peace was declared or peace was not declared and, you know, in, in persuasion where they're all hoping that this isn't the end of the war because we really want to go to sea again. Uh, so this, the kind of trousers filtered through until by 18, the 1820s, they're very normalised in men's dress. The Duke of Wellington did get turned away from the exclusive London Club All Mats in 1817 for wearing trousers when he should have been wearing correct evening breeches. So they were still a bit, you know, trudeur in some situations. But one of the other things about naval men, and look, I put him in because he's pretty, really. Uh, I'm not going to lie. The, although, technically, he is. this is Captain Gilbert Heathcote in 1806, so having just been made captain, which is the same year that Captain Wentworth in Persuasion was made captain, so this is what he would have looked like. Uh, the, the, all of these kind of... What's happening is while half of the Navy is kind of blockading Europe, the other half of the Navy, Navy is kind of scurrying as far as they can to protect shipping from things like the East India Company um, and try and do as much mischief to their enemies overseas as they can... Here. So they're, they're trying to pick up a lot of trade in South America um, and protect the shipping that is helping um, Britain's trade come in from China and India. So I was very interested in the kind of the global nature of Regency fashion, which I feel, especially when looking at Austen, there's kind of the older idea of Austen is this kind of, you know, cloistered rural Aunt Jane who didn't go out much and didn't do much. But when you look at her family, she had these incredible connections that went around the world. Um, this is a, the effects of a heavy lurch on an East Indiaman. And I was really, I tried to sort of reconceptualise Britain as it's not just the islands in Europe. Britain is also the, the East Indies. It's the West Indies. It's Australia. My country exists. Yay! Uh, <laughs> Australia's fat, white... Uh, settlement in Australia is 1788 and I tend to work on earlier periods so it was very exciting to actually have my country around at that point. Um, so this kind of um, how people travelled and if Britishness was expressed in clothing how did they kind of express that Britishness when taken out of the home place? But then I sort of started to realise just how much the world underpinned very local British fashion of which the best example is muslin. The little white dress really is the kind of iconic garment of the Regency period and it comes, the best muslin came from India and it has for thousands of years. So all of these lovely girls in white, uh, you know, it's not just muslin and of course in American now what you call muslin is what we call calico. So this is more what you call mull, I think I've got the terms right but I'm using the British terms because that's what they were at the time. Uh, so this could be, you know, plain woven cotton um, as well. But the imports from India are stimulating the British textile industry and they're helping to um, enhance the Industrial Revolution. So competition to make muslin from in Britain that would rival the incredible quality of Indian muslin that was available 
This is uh, part of a shirt that belonged to Princess Charlotte, the daughter of the Prince of Wales, then George IV, who, if she hadn't died, would have been Queen instead of Victoria. And her death, you know, changed British history forever. But this kind of the translucency and the transparency, this is what, this is the market that British manufacturers are trying to capture. In the 1790s, Indian muslin is the best. By the 1820s, British muslin can compete with it, and it's a lot cheaper. And they're actually starting to export back to India and completely undercut the local industry um, in incredible act of sort of basically corporate sabotage by the East India Company. But I also came across something interesting that I don't think has been picked up enough. Um, this is a 1795 portrait really showing that influence of muslin and the white column and a gown, uh, which is always called the classical influence uh, whenever anyone writes about it. In fact, there's a fantastic book about to come out about it by Amelia Rouser called The Age of Undress, about the 1790s. And this is a picture by Thomas Hope uh, based on one of... He's an antiquarian and he published a lot of pictures based on his collection of Greek and Roman antiquities with the kind of, the, you know, the high-waisted belt and the draped effect and the, the, the ladies looking like a column. But I read um, a quote from the, uh, an, an old East India hand who basically said that, our, you know, our ladies' fashions today are taken from a particular style of Indian dress. And the second you look at it, you go, oh, yeah. So you're telling me that the muslin that comes from India also brings with it a certain style that they've been dressing like that for hundreds of years that's high-waisted and tight under the bust. Oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. So I'm interested in kind of exploring that as another influence for the sudden rise in waists in the 1790s. And I think there's like, that's kind of an unexplored influence too, that it's possibly based on Indian dress as well as um, classical dress. It's a kind of, it's, it's still a different kind of Orientalism. But what we also have is that, you know, if you think about the 18th century as being characterised by silk, which is very solid, uh, you get silk gauzes which are slightly transparent. What muslin brings in is an appreciation of the possibilities of transparency. And so you start getting manufacturers experimenting with things like making nets and making laces and making machines that do it. So you start to get these, uh, you know, beautiful nets which can be changed by putting a gown underneath. Again, one of the beautiful things about Emma, she puts different coloured slip petticoats underneath the same muslin gown and changes the effect there. But you do get um, an increased mechanisation of gauze and open weave and netted fabrics, which makes lace cheaper, uh, makes it more affordable, makes it more uh, democratic, and it also changes how people are conceptualising it because how you cut a gown that's made out of nearly transparent fabric is very different to how you cut something that's made out of semi-transparent fabric. And so by the 1820s, you have gowns that can be made of kind of nothing, a confection of gauze with all of this, you know, cake decoration on top over a slip. And it's a completely different conception of fashion than that had, that had existed 30 years before. We also have the influence from India of shawls. Uh, what, again, a defining garment of the Regency. So this is a genuine Kashmiri shawl. Uh, they would also make gowns out of the shawls later on. And these were hugely expensive. So, you know, a genuine India shawl in about 1810 cost between 50 and 100 pounds when a housemaid's yearly wage was about 12 pounds and you could buy a muslin gown for a guinea, a pound and a shilling. So they are massively expensive. And again, the 
importation and the competition for this market meant that you have British manufacturers, especially in Scotland, in Norfolk, areas where they're used to dealing with wool, they are making imitations that they can sell at a tenth of the cost. So the fashionability of the shawl is prompted by these, you know, foreign fashions that become naturalised and then become made at home. But they're also a the grounds for one of the other my other favourite things, which is I discovered the extent to which British Regency um, gentry people smuggled. Who boy. Uh, there's one of the great, again, one of the narratives about region, the Regency period in, and fashion is that somehow Britain and England were disconnected by war. That because of the decrees, you know, Napoleon said, right, nothing can get through to England, no mails, no trade. And Britain went, oh, yeah, well, we can't trade to France either. And then they kind of bat these trade embargoes back and forth. People have taken that at face value, that that really worked. Yeah, right. Um, and... You, the, Smuggling, astonishing, widespread, normal. You have shopkeepers on the English Channel, towns putting in orders with the smugglers, going, when you next go to France, can you please get me four dozen shawls, but make sure they're dark colours and good ones, because last time I didn't like the colours you got me. Um, and then all of these smuggled goods kind of go into the, um, the normal retailing. But the Austen family definitely smuggled. And this was, this was normal. It's like downloading films, right? Everyone does it. It's the middle-class crime. So the, the, the other thing about all these naval men is that they have what's called privilege. They have a tax-free allowance that they can bring things back for. And this is why Lady Bertrand gets so excited about William Price being a midshipman in um, Mansfield Park. It's about the only time she does get excited. She says, I think I will have an Indian shawl, honey. I think I shall have two because William can bring them back without customs duty. Um, but what Fanny, another Fanny, Fanny Palmer Austin, who was Austin's sister-in-law, she was born in Bermuda, she was uh, met Charles Austin in Halifax, she gets a box sent from her sister in Bermuda, and so she sends a boat from her ship to intercept the, the ship that's coming in. She takes the package back to her ship, she divides it up, and then she sends it local mail to her parents in England, thus bypassing all the custom. Um, and they're doing this all the time. Everybody's doing it. Uh, so, you know, and also you start looking at where um, Austin's relatives in Kent, the Knight family, their house is placed precisely between the two main roads from the coast to London. So, you know, smuggled goods passing, they're, they're four miles from the major roads. They're totally buying smuggled goods there as well. Uh, and it also starts to sort of, you know, look at shawls in a different way. So these are, this is Hannah Moore, the didactic writer. This is um, an unknown woman in the V&A, but I sort of think of either Mrs or Miss Bates in Emma as looking slightly like her. They're both wearing shawls. Uh, they could be Indian, they could be British-made imitation. But in Emma, the Mrs Bates's shawl was picked out for her by Jane Fairfax at Weymouth. And Jane has been at Weymouth, but Weymouth is on the Channel Coast. And it could well be smuggled. You know, she's got a nice, warm, genuine Indian shawl, totes cheap. <laughs> so this kind of, just kind of to, to get to the end here, I, I also want to sort of emphasise how personal this global nature could be because one of the things that people in Britain are doing, uh, they are sending caps, they're sending letters, they are sending these tokens of materialised affection between each other and reinforcing their community networks that way. But what people do when they are in 
the North American station or in Australia or in India. They maintain these same social networks in exactly the same way. So in 1810, Fanny Palmer Austin is sends to her she's in she's in England and she sends to her sister Esther a piece of uh, her, our brother Frank's China present. And it's a, it's, a, it's a length of fabric, so we can assume it's a China crepe. And Frank Austin, her brother-in-law, that August, so the month before, had just come back from a long sojourn in India and China. He was escorting East India Company ships um, back to England. And so he'd obviously bought China crepe or China satin in China and then brought it back and then she sends it across the Atlantic. But Jane and Cassandra also have China crepe dresses. They don't appear in the letters before 1810, and they appear to be sort of quite good pieces. Uh, we know that Jane and Cassandra often had the same dresses, and I, so I think it's reasonable to assume that one Austin man physically enables the transmission of a textile from China to Halifax, halfway around the world, through four different women, and is kind of, he's, 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 you know, the typhoid Mary of China crepe, as it were. <laughs> uh, pandemics are on my mind now, obviously. Um, so this kind of, this, this personal experience of the world was part of Austin's life. And she could have been wearing China crepe that wasn't made in Britain, but was literally made in China. Um, and I, I'm kind of interested in that sense of expansion and possibilities that is through personal acquaintance. And even, you know, when you get women in Australia, um, they're, they're writing shopping lists back home. You know, the person shopping next to Jane Austen in a warehouse in London could well have been buying the same ribbons and bonnets and shoes to send out to the end of the world because that's how you shopped. You shopped at, by proxy through friends. And, you know, if you're uh, in the Antipodes or South America, eh, you've kept it going. So I sort of love this sense of Britain as the world, Britain as community and connection, uh, which we sort of can extrapolate out through Austin. So just to kind of end there um, with one of my favourite pictures of Regency dress, which is Relinda Sharple's 1817, the ball at the Clifton Assembly Rooms. And it's full of so many fabulous details of clothing, the hats, uh, the caps and the turbans and the fans. And I mean, it's not very good, but look at his fabulous Hessian boots. He's got silver gilt tassels with an edging and a little red heel and you know he knows he's looking schmick look at him he's all like in the middle there going hey uh you've got the chapeau bra and the, uh, held under the arm with the york tan gloves and so to kind of like read this picture not just as a picture of oh it's pretty regency dress but all of those layers of, of technology and economics and society and culture and relationship and personal attractiveness um that's what's most interested me about using Jane Austen as a lens to kind of look at the, the Regency period. Uh, so this is my book. This is the result of it. <laughs> um, and I am on uh, social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram at Four Red Shoes. The book has its own Twitter page and then um, I try and keep these reasonably updated, my website, with what I'm doing. So if you would like to know more, um, you can buy the book. But um, if you've got any burning questions, I will take questions now before I sign copies. So thank you. I have been meaning to. Um, there is 
the, the exact pattern without any grading is in the article I wrote about it in 2015, which is um, open access to download from the journal Costume. So you can get that. Um, I had been meaning to do a whole little booklet or something about the police with exact instructions on how to do it for about a decade now. Um, I did meet a pattern grader the other day who was like, do you want to work on grading the police pattern together? And I went, yes, I've wanted to do this for ages. So I hope this will be something that happens more in the future. There are plans, but I've been saying that for a while. So, okay. you know, feel free to keep harassing me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Definitely plans, yes, because it needs serious grading to make it fit yeah. most people. It's roughly right. Um, certainly the older you get, the more you put on a cap. So again, 25 is a bit young for, you know, normally wearing caps. Um, so by the time you reach, you know, 35 is really kind of pushing it. 40, that you're well into middle age. So you should be wearing a cap just for everybody's benefit. Is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing fashionable, you know, quotes of the time. Uh, so, but you, m most women did wear caps, so you would wear also a cap underneath a bonnet um, to protect the lining of the bonnet from your hair. Um, but yeah, the younger you were, the less you wore them. Um, you know, your hair was sort of the, the, the glory, but as you got married, you were sort of assumed more sober, more matronly clothing. But you could still certainly, um, you know, show your hair in the evenings and things like that. But it, it age is more the kind of, the, the, the cap. The, the older you are, the more you cover up. Um, Yes. How common was the sixties sixties trend? Do you have any sense of that? Because that really it's there's a huge range of quality in Regency stitching. Um, I haven't done an exact quantitative analysis of the pieces that I've seen, but uh, the eighteenth century curator at the VA, Susan North, did a PhD on shirts and underwear and hygiene and she's looked at an incredible amount of sort of early modern and early 19th century shirts um, and her book is coming out anytime soon and I think she's done more of a kind of an analysis of the quality of stitching versus the quality of shirt. Um, Thomas Coots was quite wealthy and his shirts are of a, a fine quality so they are upper end but not exceptional in that sense. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. I know it's not really a question, maybe more of an observation. I just find it interesting that it seems that at this time it's what sort of solidifies what the male dress is. Like absolutely. They kind of yes, there are some changes, but it kind of is that suit. Mm -hmm. that carries us on for quite some time, whereas women's clothing tends to then go, we keep going back and forth. And, you know, we've had this conversation in my house of why in the world is in the Regency period that that's what we decided that men's clothing was supposed to be, because they all didn't want to wear a suit to a wedding. <laughs> it, it absolutely is, but I think in a sense, um, let's pop back to this one, there are some tropes of women's dress that are still with us today. So the idea that men are dark and women are decorative um, is, like, look at the Oscars. 
you know, they're still trying to break it. You get someone like Billy Porter who kind of pushes it at the Met Gala and it really stands out because men wear dark wool suits and women uh, in the evening have much more exposed flesh, which sort of makes no sense really, but uh, the kind of, and that they carry all the decorative work of fashion. I feel really kicks in at this point. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The template of men's dress, it's only varied since then. Um, and, you know, the concept, I think it's the, the, the power of the concept of tailoring, where the emphasis moves from the quality of the fabric and the outward show to what it does for the body. It's about the engineering and the sculpting, so that the excellence comes through through subtlety. It makes the man look better rather than the clothes look better, is, is the idea. Whereas women are still carrying a lot of, um, you know, the clothes are more obviously done. The cut doesn't have to be so particular. I mean, you know, nice cut's a nice cut. But the, the emphasis on skill and what the clothing is supposed to be doing changes. So, yeah, I, I agree that this is, this is sets the template till, till now, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah, I mean, you know, if they don't want to get dressed up for a wedding, just say, well, if you only have to wear it once, you don't have to wear it every well, day. Well, then I got into, well, would you rather wear a kilt? And they both looked at me and said yes, and I'm like, well, okay, there we go. Yeah, that'd be great. More kilts. I'm, I'm all for more kilts. More, more men in skirts, really. Um, yeah. Other questions? Yes. I just want to be curious. Um, Twenty years of rough bombing. Yes. That's really interesting. Um, a friend of mine's putting together a big, she wants to do a big project on the relationship between the whaling industry, baleen, and fashion in the early modern period. Um, and I've not come across that before, but that's, that, is, that is really quite interesting because a lot of people have discussed possible reasons for, you know, why does fashion change? Why does, it, why does the waist go up? Why does it become lighter? Why do these things work? And no one, like, there's no one single cause. And so much of it seems to be kind of mutual influence. So, you know, do things get lighter because, you know, baleen is more expensive? But is, is that coming before or after at the same time? Um, but that's a really interesting perspective, not one that I've come across before. Um, so I'm going to think about that for a while. And if you've got any sources or something that you could give me, that would be, you know, great. And um, I will kind of put that in the mill and ch chase it down and see where so I can go. Yeah. 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 I'd, I'd not considered about... Cause the hair powder, um, you know, men stop powdering their hair in 1795 when a powder tax comes in. Um, you know, there's a very distinct kind of, okay, they're taxing it because hair powder used uh, wheat or rice, which was a foodstuff. So when you have a shortage, there's no point, you know, putting it in your hair and wasting it there. So they say, right, we're going to tax it. And everyone suddenly goes, look, I think not powdering your hair is suddenly really fashionable. Um, so there are... 
yeah, there, there are links like that. And um, I will definitely follow that up. Thank you. Yes. Well, the the like <laughs> the French Revolution is attributed as a cause to a lot in fashion that I feel was sort of happening anyway. Um, so certainly in France, the extreme simplicity of dress became um, a kind of political point, and you know the merveilleurs and the incroyables um, are wearing kind of exaggerated extremity of simplicity and. You know, more like what the peasants are wearing to show their solidarity. But then the Jacobins are wearing kind of, you know, they're coming up at the same time very soon after um, in kind of opposition to this. And a lot of the trends about like the white muslin dresses, they'd been there since, you know, Marie Antoinette was painted by Elizabeth Vigier Lebrun in the 1780s. So it kind of crystallised a lot of things. But even then, there was competition within France with different political groups. Um, and some washed over to England, but then England had its own influences, and a lot of the simplicity of dress, this kind of so-called democratic dress, had already been there in influences from English dress. It was said that if you dressed like an Englishman, you were appropriately dressed anywhere on the continent. It was seen as this kind of bastion of quiet good taste. Um, so it's hard to tell kind of, you know, what what gets magnified or amplified by the French Revolution so that a spotlight gets put on it, but it was building anyway. But then it changes and kind of goes on. Um, and, you know, in, in fact, what happens once Napoleon becomes emperor in 1804? Yep, four. Um, is he then goes into inventing a court dress and he goes back to 18th century splendour and invents this incredible court dress that's really elaborate and embroidered and then, you know, Josephine has her own that she sets with this kind of Medici collar and sort of a, a long trained velvet thing. So the empire, as Napoleon sees it, actually starts embracing opulence and creating this kind of deliberate... Um, deliberate kind of new traditions that are based on the opulence of the past. So it, there's this kind of interweaving and mutual, you know, uh, reaction and, and anti-reactions that I feel kind of makes it so exciting. Um, yeah, so the French Revolution's there, but it's part of a much bigger picture. <laughs> no pressure, Juliet. Go for it. That's a really good point. Yes. Because Rizinger Wolf shows her as a 
as an artist, by name, it was one of the last dresses that Celine made, and work, of course, you know, has been the struggle of writing about fashion. It's not trivial. It's yes. Relevant. Yes. Yeah. Um, Janice Brooks and I have been having conversations about sewing and music. Um, because I'll flip back to, she's very interested in the Canterbury, which is something I didn't even know existed. Uh, and where in, I found records of women kind of colonizing the drawing room and using the piano as a measuring space. So we're both kind of, we've, we've had discussions about the public uses and the shifting uh, realm of the drawing room for women's creativity and how they kind of intersect. So she showed me, um, she pointed out in uh, this picture of the Irwin sisters. Okay. Um, this is a Canterbury, which is the bit underneath the piano where you store the music. So I look at this picture and I see them sewing and with the work basket, and she looks at this picture and she sees them storing music um, and reading. And we both feel that there's something to be done about this crossover between sort of creativity, making, what you can do in a public space, how you move things in and out of the drawing room, what you can do when other people are there. And we're kind of, we, we don't know what it is yet, but we're, this picture sums it up. Whatever it is, <laughs> that's, the, that's the picture that we're going to use to kind of think about those things. So that's a really good point. I will actually add her manuscript because it's, it's, it's really pertinent, these kind of private public activities that women do that are trivialised as pastimes. You know, the whole discussion about accomplishments in um, Pride and Prejudice. Um, you know, reading is an accomplishment, but is reading music an accomplishment? Is playing it, you know, how does that, how does that work? It's, I think there's a lot of potential there for future work. We have a few copies left to purchase out front. Give me two minutes. I'm going to pull in a table in here so that she has a little bit more room for signing and people can sit and wait. And I'll, I'm happy to do it out there if it's easier. If you no, know, it's working. I got the table right here. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> Call them. Wipe down. Yes, you can bring it in the corner. If you could hold the door, that would be. I will absolutely hold the door. <laughs> 